Hi everyone, we're on episode 13 of season 5 and I have Matt Ram back with me. Hi Matt. Hi Katharina, how are things going? Things are going very, very well, thank you. Um, I've just um, started to complete, as I'm sure people who are listening have uh, heard me say every now and then, obviously this I, um, I was diagnosed with autism last year and I've just been completing some um, neurological occupational therapy with some sensory profiling. Um, I'm doing that with a company called um, Chrysalis and uh, a lovely woman there called Nicola. And um, we've just been doing the next stage of that, so that's good. And she's um, been t- teaching me lots of techniques and giving me ideas of what I should get at home and um, to Alan's very much Alan's delight she has suggested that I should get a hot tub and um, that might sound strange in some ways but actually there is a very clear um, kind of reason behind it for, for people who are living with autism if there is some symptoms in a sense that revolve around um, what's known as proprioception and that's all about understanding where your body is in relation to the world around you and I'm not not saying that in a I think some people probably wonder what on earth that and the best example I can probably give is that um, people will probably watch out for it now when they see me walking around sometimes and it is a bit for me it probably comes across as a bit comical when I do it sometimes I will walk into door frames and I've just not judged the depth perception of where my arm is and that side of my body is compared to the to the door frame Um, so that's that's kind of like where I am with that. Um, but it's interesting. So yeah, Alan's very, very happy um, about this. And um, he's wanted one for years and I've always said no. So so that's kind of like where I'm up to. And, and how are you doing, Matt? Yeah, I'm not too bad at all. Thank you very much indeed. Dare I say that I'm off to Rome on Monday uh, for, for four days. Uh, one day we'll be watching uh, the tennis, okay. um, the Italian Open. So uh, so looking forward to that. Uh, the only problem is uh, the, the weather which looks as though it's going to rain nearly every day. Despite the uh, the weather, it'll be a little bit warmer over there. And of course, Rome is um, uh, an incredible place in its own right. Yeah, well, let's face it, the food. The food's going to be amazing. You know what? Why am I going to Rome? I don't like tennis and I don't like pasta. So there you <gasps> go. <laughs> <laughs> right, so it's, it's a very good job that this will not be going out before you're actually in Italy, so the Italians <laughs> don't know your thoughts on pasta. So, focusing on what we're going to be doing today. So today we are going to be talking about Huntington's disease and what to do if you have this condition or a family history of this condition and are wanting insurance. So this is the Practical Protection Podcast. So to start things off, I usually do like to go through a little bit of a background on what um, Huntington's or the condition is. So today's going to be Huntington's and then we're going to get into the real underwriting side of things with Matt. So Huntington's disease is a neurological condition and it's usually diagnosed between the ages of 30 and 50. And it is a condition that is hereditary. It will affect a person's mobility, their cognitive functions and their mental health. Unfortunately, at the moment, a diagnosis of Huntington's will result in the person dying at a younger age than we would hope for. It's usually within about 20 years of diagnosis. So that would be 20 years of of onset of the condition. There is also something as well known as juvenile Huntington's disease that is diagnosed in somebody before the age of 20. But this is incredibly rare. It is usually between the ages of 30 and 50. Some of the symptoms um, also mirror what we would maybe see in Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease, and it is a genetic test that would then confirm 
um, specifically that it is Huntington's. Matt, I think it's a good idea to sort of start off saying, what are the symptoms of Huntington's disease? What would you be expecting to hear as an underwriter or, or to see in those kind of medical reports when you get those through? Okay, well, in, in terms of the, the early signs, I mean, this is a, a progressive disease, disease which you've, uh, you've already alluded to, of course, but the early signs um, would be minimal but slight but un uncontrollable muscular movements, uh, stumbling and clumsiness, lack of concentration, short-term memory lapses, depression, and changes of mood, sometimes including aggressive or antisocial behaviour. Picking up on the depression side, that within the early uh, periods of being diagnosed and, and through the middle period, actually suicide is quite a big um, factor in terms of mortality that show up in, in some statistics. Um, clearly, uh, the, the changes of mood, aggressive antisocial behaviour are pretty can be pretty severe and the depression can be pretty severe. So um, sadly, suicide does come up as a cause of death within the, uh, the, the early and middle part of this, the progression of this disease. So uh, that's, that's uh, all pretty sad. So really, those are the, the, the early middle time, if you want, and they, those, all of those symptoms um, get progressively or can get, get uh, progressively worse. Um, that said, symptoms can vary wildly. Um, so it's not all the same. It's not the same for everybody. Um, you could get maybe one or two of those. Um, you could get them in a, in, a, in a pretty bad way, if you want, um, and not have others. But those are the, generally the signs that you would see. Not, as I say, not all of them necessarily. But later on, as the, uh, as the illness progresses, um, you can often see involuntary movements, difficulty in speech and swallowing weight loss, stubbornness, which is obviously part of all the, the I presume, the, the mood and the mental health side um, of this particular disease. Um, frustration, not surprisingly, that you, you can't do what you once used to be able to do. And again, you've got the, um, the mood swings as well. So quite a lot of mental health issues coming up, coming up there. I think it's important to say as well, those are, those are certainly the, um, uh, the symptoms of the disease. And I think from an underwriting perspective, it's, it's rare that underwriters would see or get to the stage of um, seeing the disease at a late um, stage of it, of its development, because I think um, the, the, the signs, the, the symptoms are so marked that really um, the, the, the case probably wouldn't get any further than maybe a help, uh, a call from the, from the uh, advisor to the underwriting helpline or a proposal at, at best. Earlier on, obviously, as I say, these can be, I've, I've mentioned a, a stack of uh, different symptoms and these can be pretty mild early on. So an underwriter would uh, would uh, be looking out for those types of things. However, you've, you've mentioned um, that this is a hereditary disorder of the uh, central nervous system. Um, and I think it's 
important to set a scene here um, in in terms of the uh, the family history, and I know there's some questions coming on later on on this uh, of this, and why it is so so important from an underwriting angle. And not only that, it's the care of the individual as well, and peace of mind as well. Um, but as I say, it's hereditary disorder, and it's a defect, inherited defect of a single gene, and it's something complicated or not, depending on your knowledge. It's, it's an autosomal dominant um, stage, which means that a person needs only one copy of the defective gene to develop the disorder. So with the exception, you may know that with the exception of the genes on, on, on sex chromosomes, a person inherits two copies of every gene, one copy from each parent. Okay. So a parent with a defective gene could pass the defective copy of the gene on or the healthy copy. So each child in the family has got a 50% chance of inheriting the gene that causes this genetic disorder. I hope that makes sense to, to, to the listeners, um, but it's, as I say, 50% chance. And obviously it is such a nasty disease that, um, Genetic testing is often carried out, and I know Catherine that we wanted to ask a couple of questions about that later on. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that here. Um, I think that's more... incredibly, yeah, you know, it's it's really really helpful, Matt. You know, obviously the the aspect of the fact that you and almost there is that fifty fifty chance, and obviously that in itself, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit here about people who have the condition and what that can mean for them. But there's also as well an extra dynamic as people who are advisors and insurers as well about speaking with people who have a family history and you know, having that kind of thing of, of knowing that there's a 50-50 chance of you developing this condition, can, can that in itself can take its toll um, as well, can't it, Matt? Oh, goodness gracious, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's um, frightening, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, but nevertheless, these days, um, it's going off the subject a little bit, maybe, but with IVF and so on and so forth, if, if you have a family history of this and you're worried about passing it on to your children, then you, and, and you, you, there are uh, IVF facilities around whereby a number of eggs can be um put in the old Petri dish to sound very cold about it, um, impregnated with sperm, and then those embryos are tested for whether the Huntington's gene is present or not. Yeah. And obviously, if the Huntington's gene is, then it's down to the parents to say, okay, we won't, we won't continue the process with those, but the ones that aren't can go back into the into the mum's womb and um, and with the parents knowing that that gene won't be carried forward. Yeah. So again, it's not really the subject of today necessarily, yes. but there are ways forward that some um, clients um, or, or just people listening generally can have a family um, without with, with the knowledge that they're not that gene will not be passed on to them. So it's, I mean, again, you know, you're talking what the last 30 years, 20, 30 years or something like that. So it's 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 a positive step forward, not particularly palatable step forward, but it is certainly better than worrying all your life about passing that gene on. So I'm Absolutely. sorry to go off on a bit of a tangent there. No, no, um, it was really. I think it's 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 just worth throwing that out there, really. 
Absolutely. And I, I think obviously, I mean, talking about the genetics and everything does does really help. And I think, you know, when we're saying there about, you know, you said about how a lot of underwriters possibly wouldn't even see an application from yeah. somebody who's obviously really displaying quite marked symptoms and where the conditions progressed. And for anybody who's listening um, who does have the condition or does have the family history or is trying to support somebody with the condition, uh, what Matt's talking about are policies where the underwriters do tend to be quite involved, which would be a lot of what we, we consider or would be considered standard insurance. Um, there are options away from kind of the standard insurance market that can be looked at. And when I say that, I always wonder if people would maybe worry that I'm talking about something that's super expensive or super exclusions and things like that. Um, it really depends upon the situation. It doesn't have to be massively expensive. You know, it, it really does depend upon the individual situation. It's always worth asking. And there are times as well that sometimes when we maybe approach an insurer for for this kind of situation, that if, if somebody were to try and apply and it would maybe be a case of, oh, they've applied for, I'm just going to take some figures out of the S, maybe like £100,000 over 25 years, that the insurer might say no, but actually, if we can then we can then maybe approach and say, well, actually, so if you can't do twenty five years, could you potentially do less? Could you do five years? Could you do ten years? And, and whilst that might not be the end goal of what we're wanting to achieve, it's something that is there that then, as obviously as time goes on, can continue to be reviewed and see if we can get something um, a bit longer insurance wise. But um, one thing I have to come across, Matt, um, is people being quite confused about um, when they ask questions by insurers. So sometimes I think people either very happily just go through the questions and just answer them however they feel. Some people are very fine with the questions that are there. And some people can almost get a little bit um, uncertain as to what is actually being asked. And um, some of the things that people... Um, ask us about and ask us to clarify more about is this thing about predictive versus diagnostic tests and how they kind of factor into insurance applications so like you know obviously with the focusing on the Huntington side of things I'm just wondering if you could explain how that works because you know insurers are not allowed to ask about genetic testing yeah but then people get a bit confused what that means in terms of the predictive versus the diagnostic okay I think to an extent it's it's just in the the, the 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 wording of genetic testing probably throws people out and yeah. thinks you know goodness gracious this is an incredibly complicated subject um which it is let's be fair about it um but really it's it's very much um these these two different types of tests if you want um broad tests uh, they actually say they do what they say on the tin so so most common one is, I'm, you know, you, you will know, and many of our listeners will know, but that's, the, the diagnostic test is, is used to confirm a diagnosis where a particular condition is suspected based on, on physical signs and symptoms. Okay, so you'll go along to your doc, you know, um, I'm uh, suffering from this or something from, suffering from that, or my family history isn't great at all. And what the doctor will do or sorry a geneticist will do is that they will ask for a, a diagnostic test and that will confirm whether that person is, is is actually suffering from at that time the the uh condition whatever the condition happens to be now a predictive one really is um it, it, it is literally predicting the future, if you want. So it's it's predictive as a positive result 
will mean that you have an increased risk of developing disease. Mm. So difference being, one is diagnostic, it is telling you you have, and the other one is saying you don't necessarily have, but you've got an in- increased risk of developing this disease. Yeah. Is that, have I yeah. explained that okay? Yeah, I think so. I think for me, it's, it comes down to, say. yeah, I, I think it sort of comes down to, we, we try and say, diagnostic means there's something going on and you've been having tests to establish the cause for what is going on. Yep. And the predictive is more sort of like a, there's nothing, yeah, just the opposite way, you know, I can't really say any other way, to be honest, I'm trying to see, think if I can word it, but basically there's nothing going on, but it's a just-in-case test so you can potentially prepare for the future. Yeah. And I think it's important as well for us to be quite clear on some of the wording that comes with the insurance applications forms, because there's usually a statement that says that insurers cannot ask about genetic testing or something I just mentioned then, you know, with either a positive or a negative result, except for Huntington's, if somebody is applying for more than £500,000 worth of life insurance or £300,000 worth of critical illness. So if you have had a genetic test and you know it's been a positive, you, you must tell the insurer about that if you are applying for insurance above those figures. So I suppose what's interesting about that, um, Matt, is because I imagine obviously Huntington's is, a, is as we've said before, it is, it's an intense condition that is going to be life limiting, but it's certainly not the only one. And I'm, I'm certainly not wanting to advocate adding even more conditions um, to this list of um, pr- predictive um, need to notify an insurer. But I suppose I do wonder why we would ask about Huntington's and not necessarily others. Yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question, um, really. I think that I'll probably have to go back um, I haven't got like a very long time when I actually sat on the ABI's genetic committee um, and we discussed um, the uh, talk through, remember chief medical officers and so on and so forth often would join these meetings as well, uh, talk through the whys and wherefores of, of really what we were going to do as a whole with, with genetic testing in, in the insurance industry. Um, now, of course, I'm going off on a tangent slightly here, but of course, the great concern at the time, um, which hasn't really materialised as yet, although I think we might be moving towards, is the fact that people could take um, genetic tests out with the normal medical environment, um, know whether they had um, either a diagnostic they were positive for diagnostic for particular disease or, or, or predictive and then start taking out life insurance mm. because they knew that something was was up. Yeah. Um, but obviously nobody in the medical profession would actually know and therefore do what they do. Um, in terms of Huntington's, I don't think I've ultimately got a, a great answer for you, apart from saying it was it's one, it was a kind of like, you're absolutely right to say that there are other uh, conditions out there, certainly, but Huntington's at the time certainly stood out as the most obvious, whereby if you knew that you were, you were positive, then um, the, the chance, well, we've already talked about um, uh, 
I'm not sure if we have actually talked about when you're likely to die in the context of, 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 um, uh, of the disease. Maybe you have, Catherine, apologies. Uh, I said uh, within about, I think I said about within about 20 years of diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, I think that that certainly is where, I mean, I've, I've got 10 to 30, I think, noted yeah, down somewhere, okay. but, so that falls right in the middle. Yeah. Um, Huntington's disease kind of stood out as the, as the most obvious and um, oh, nastiest is not the right word to use, um, but the one that insurers should worry about the most, I suppose, is the yeah. best way to, to try. And I would emphasize the word try and explain that. Um, it, it's, it's been there since the beginning of time, uh, the, the Huntington disease, I'm sure. Um, and maybe it's time to think about it again. I, I don't know. But as far as I'm aware, until you've just raised it, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of, of, of any bad press or concerns about that some assured being being in there i think we also have to think that you know you at least if you, if you look at the insurance buying public and the average sum assured for a life policy let's say it it is well under half a million pounds yeah um, I, I don't know if you have a figure. The kind of the last figures I were hearing were around 180,000 was the average. Was that would that be um, about right? I don't know yeah. the average. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I'm not saying that we've spoken to to lots and lots of people living no. with the condition, but um, or, or sorry that we have like family members and they're going for the genetic testing. And I think it comes down to that balance of there's not been a lot of people with an insurable need above those figures sometimes yep. people are but generally so for, again for anybody who's not familiar too much with insurance terminology as an advisor and and also insurers what we're always trying to establish is what's known as the insurable interest so so why do you need that much insurance you, you can't just generally turn up to an insurer and say i want three million pounds worth of life insurance that you know they're going to want to know why they'd want to see financial information they'd want you to attend medicals to to make sure that they understand what what is this for that, that you know the we don't use life insurance in a sense to generate wealth um it needs to be in a sense a reason um so so for a lot of people um something like a mortgage can easily put people over the 500,000 pound uh number for the life insurance sometimes there's lots of ways to build up these recommendations so it can be a mortgage it can be sometimes certain multiples of salary based upon family protection um, it can sometimes go into things like the more complex things such as um, inheritance tax planning and things like that um, but for a lot of people I would say that you know probably the 500,000 pounds of life insurance they would probably quite happily sit within that and not trigger this uh this request for the yeah. yeah absolutely but i think you know in, in the other side of things though that probably takes us quite nicely matt on to discussing the family medical history side of things so whilst we don't need to obviously always tell the insurer about these predictive tests we do often need to talk about the family medical history can i can i just interject there just yeah. just um, just um, it, it, covers one of the points earlier and I think I want to make it I think it's important to make it very very clear absolutely that whilst, the, that whilst we we as an, I'm sorry in this context I mean underwriters um, but why not the insurance industry um, we don't ask for the results of tests but big big point is here if you've had a test 
and it is negative, you can let your financial advisor know and that can be built into the underwriting decision. Yeah, you can volunteer and that information. You yes. can volunteer that information. In fact, I would almost say if you have a negative test, absolutely make sure you volunteer that information. Don't forget. Um, it's not that insurers will turn around and say, no, sorry, we can't ask for that. Therefore, we're not going to use it. They will use it, I can absolutely assure you. And um, with Huntington's, that's an absolute classic scenario whereby, I suppose you could say it's, it's rather obvious, really, but I think it's important to say that if you have a parent who has Huntington's disease and then the child, well, obviously they might be a little bit older than a child, um, has a negative test, then they will be standard rates. Yeah. Even if you, no, it's not, we know that there is no risk there because they haven't got the the, uh, the, the positive gene and therefore the effective gene and um, therefore they will get standard rates. So I think it's important to, to, to say, and it's, you're quite right, Catherine, and you, you mentioned other diseases in the context of the, uh, of the Huntington's, but you know, the ones that I, the underwriters do see a fair amount of, um, uh, uh, the, you know, the BRCA genes, breast and uh, ovarian yes. cancer scenarios, where it's, where it's important to um, to know for the underwriters to to, to know what's uh, what is going on. And with with BRCA, um, I can't remember the exact figures. I think that of all breast cancers, only I say only it's it's, it's far too much, but 15 percent of the breast cancers are. are, are genetically linked from BRCA anyway but it's, it's you know it, it still will help it'll give the underwriter a, re, a, a, a reason to be as generous as they possibly can yeah so that's that's all I would highlight there um do you want to do you want to go on to to the, to the next question I'm sorry I couldn't give you a better answer on Huntington's by the way in the 500,000 no um but you no, know maybe it is you know things things should never say stay the shouldn't stay the same for just for the sake of it. And I think maybe that that, that was that, that something was put in a long, long time ago. Um, maybe it is time for, for somebody somewhere to um, just just recheck whether that's that's a reasonable figure or not. Yeah. But I think they will they will look at the basis of the typical size of policy that is sold in the UK um, yeah. and, and, and go on from there. Um, okay, sorry. Absolutely. No, no, no. I, I hope that helps. It does. I think, you know, sort of like just a little bit of a recap on that one is just to say to people that with, you know, there are usually a set of family medical history questionnaires on these applications. They will generally ask for if your family has experienced something before the age of 65, sometimes yeah. the age of 60. Yeah. Um, and when they do this, I always like to be clear as well. So this is to do with your immediate blood related parents and siblings and insurers do take into account if you are estranged from your family or if you're adopted so so please don't worry about that there has been a lot of development and understanding in the differences in family dynamics and what people um people's personal circumstances are but generally within that we would be seeing questions along the lines of you know cancer heart attack stroke um, sometimes things to do with the kidneys certain conditions that way and you know Huntington's disease would be something that's listed and and the fact that a lot of people are diagnosed between the ages of 30 and 50 does mean that it often comes up in the question set so whilst you might have a family medical history and you might think well I'm, I'm going to be applying for less than this amount so even though I've had genetic testing whether or not it's positive or negative 
it's I'm not going to need to say anything about me. Whilst that is the case, there is usually a question somewhere where they, they will take into account a notice from the family medical history, which is is with what you were saying, Matt, is that if you have had a test and it has been um, negative, then that can be really useful to volunteer. Um, one thing we have had before as well sometimes is um, people sometimes say to us, well, would it be better for me if I have a genetic test? Will I get better options? And that's a really tricky one to answer yeah. because that is absolutely up to the individual because there is a, there is a very clear potential um potentially upsetting experience when you're going to be faced with your own mortality and and the chance that you'll develop this condition um so as an advisor we wouldn't ever advise to have the test or or not to have this or i was going to say we would never do that i would i would suggest all advisors i can't say for everybody but i would suggest to all advisors that you wouldn't be involved in suggesting whether or not somebody has that test or not because obviously it could be an incredibly positive thing it could also be an incredibly emotional thing that could be could lead to obviously some mental health and um, difficulties. And I certainly, I mean, I'm talking about that from the aspect of somebody asking you your opinion. I would certainly never suggest that you volunteer suggesting somebody that they have that test because it could make the terms better on the basis that the, the person that you're speaking to will have been faced with that perspective of taking that test for probably quite a long time and they will have hopefully been able to make peace with, with whatever decision they made with that and um and you know certainly you don't want to be putting anybody in a situation where you're making them in a sense second guess themselves or potentially leading them into something that would would make them not feel okay yeah i, I completely support that um you know believe uh, underwriters get asked that question as well yeah and um, you know, it is it is not for underwriter or anybody um, to suggest one way or the other. It's it, when people do have genetic tests. I've not had one, but my understanding is that there's a, you know, there are, there are professional people who are used to the discussions, pros and cons of doing these, and, and counselling certainly is pre-test is very very important here. So it's certainly something which. Um, the insurance industry shouldn't um, get involved with. Um, yeah, I, I support that completely, and I and I, just don't, I don't think it's just advisors. And I, I don't I appreciate that you absolutely were, you're talking from an advisor perspective. Yeah, um, I know. Um, but yeah, underwriters get asked that question as well. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Don't don't, don't get involved. Um, no. the, the GP first port of call, and then they will no doubt get you to a geneticist if you yep. really want to um, explore the pros and cons of it at a later stage. Absolutely. Um, so the next one's going on to a little bit of a product query here, Matt. Um, so thinking about like critical illness cover, obviously it's a really interesting area. So critical illness cover is a policy that pays out if you are diagnosed with a critical illness. So that would be, uh, you know, heart attacks often of a certain severity, um, cancer of a specific severity and potentially a stroke again, um, again, a certain severity. It can be Parkinson's. It could be um, a certain amount of third degree burns to the to the body. It can be um, permanent loss of limbs. Um, there's lots and lots of things. Usually, um, I would say probably on average at least 50 um, conditions um, that would be covered by that policy. Now, one thing that's always been interesting is that we've had quite a lot of people. And one of the, the main queries that we get um, that comes into ourselves that, where we know it's linked to critical illness cover and a Huntington's either, um, diagnosis either for themselves or for a family member is they want to know if they can have critical illness cover 
that will cover them for um, the diagnosis of Huntington's. Now, something that's really interested with that is the fact that Huntington's isn't listed as a critical illness, but based upon how difficult it is to get insurances sometimes and, and different things like that, depending even upon just family medical history, um, it does make you wonder why it wouldn't be covered under that. There are some specific aspects of the policies that it could come under, which would be something that's known as total permanent disability once the condition has um, reached a certain level of severity in terms of symptoms. Uh, we do have some insurance policies now, the critical illness cover, where it doesn't list specific neurological conditions and it just says you are diagnosed with a neurological condition of a certain severity, which, which would actually pay out for Huntington's, but that is a rarity rather than the norm that we would see with these products. Um, so Matt, really, I suppose Matt, the question I'm posing to you, and I hope that this isn't too much putting you on the spot, or, or <laughs> I'm sure there's underwriters everywhere that have probably got answers for me. And please, I always say, please do reach out to me. Let you know. Have answers. Yes, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to be sharing your names with anybody or anything. I'm just, I'm genuinely intrigued. But why isn't Huntington's disease considered a critical illness for these types of policies? Okay, I, I think... I just, again, want to sidetrack slightly in answering this, or attempting, I have to say, attempting to answer the question, in that I don't think anybody in the insurance industry would say that um, Huntington's is not a critical illness. It is a nasty disease, which we've already talked about, and very nasty disorder. So there's, there's no doubt that one could argue, and I find it very difficult not to argue, that um, Huntington's is a critical illness. The point that you made earlier on um, was why isn't it listed as a critical illness? And I, I think that's a pretty good question. I suppose um, if I can throw an answer or a question back to you, and, and that is um, you, you mentioned that, that quite a lot of, to, to quote, paraphrase, quite a lot of people want to get this to, uh, and, and critical illness, that is, and, and have uh, a, uh, Huntington's as a claimable condition, so one of the listed disorders. Now, given the genetic makeup of the disease and the fact that we've talked about 50% likelihood if you have a parent to Zardula, um, you know, the, the, the cynic, and I, let, you know, I will be cynical slightly, why would they want the cover if they didn't, they knew that they didn't have Huntington's. Why would they, why would they be concerned about it? I suppose you could say the same though for people that know they're positive for the BRCA gene and potentially know that they, I suppose that is a potential rather than the Huntington's, a, which is a, is a yep. certain. Well, um, on 50%, yeah. Yeah, sorry, yes, yeah, sorry, yes, of course. I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit of a rhetorical question in a sort of way. Um, you know, why would people be so concerned about getting cover for specifically for Huntington's um, if they knew that they didn't have it? Maybe the concern is they have a parent who has it and they don't know whether they've got it or not. Um, and they, they're kind of looking to hedge their bets, I suppose. Um, but... It, it, it's it's a good question. Um, I think that... I feel like I've stumped you, Matt. I feel like there isn't an easy answer. I feel like this no, is one of those things that's... No, no, no. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, yes, 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 I suppose. Well, no, no, no. Um, 
I'm not sure about, <laughs> I'm not sure about ultimately stumped, but it's certainly not an easy question to answer, apart from I would go back and say, well, look, there are other areas of the of critical illness. You've mentioned um, certainly one insurer. I know you haven't mentioned them by name, but one insurer whereby um, Huntington's could be claimed for um, under a under a different listed illness or, or group of symptoms. Um, but obviously, I say obviously, um, TPD is the one whereby you would. Uh, you could easily claim, I think, for some of the later stages of of, uh, of Huntington's. Um, I think if I if I have to really go back to um, the when critical illness was really thought out, um, the first policies in the UK were, were were issued, and obviously the actuaries and underwriters got together in a in a, in a big way to discuss the. Um, the risks that were involved in this type of policy in terms of you know making sure that the right premiums were paid by them in the right instance in the right cases and i think with huntington's there was a if you covered huntington's then the additional cost of the claims that came from that would potentially make the policy even more expect or perceived even more expensive than it is already. And therefore, the best way to handle it, and you know, the, whether it's the best way or not is, is, is debatable, was to say, okay, we're gonna we'll put it under um, TPD um, and deal with the claims that come through that way by, you know, but also at the same time, obviously monitoring the claims that come through under TPD. Um, so generally when things aren't covered, when, when, when crit genuine critical illness is not covered by a insurance company critical illness plan, there is a good reason for it. And that's often, I think, to, to do with the, um, the, the, the pricing and the ability of the underwriters to ensure, to ensure that that pricing is give or take correct. And I think it, to underwrite out those cases would be maybe, problem, maybe problematical. Um, and as such, cover was felt not to be explicitly offered as in a listed illness. But nevertheless, as I say, well, you said, sorry, uh, there are companies that will effectively uh, cover Huntington's, um, but there's always TPD as well, whereby total and permanent disability, as you know, um, then the symptoms that I've uh, outlined earlier about the severity of disease, then um, uh, that will certainly make a claim possible. Um, I suppose the next I'm just trying to think here in terms of critical illness, if, if bear in mind, you, you've talked about the family history questions, yeah. if, somebody, if somebody actually um, discloses family history, would they get critical illness? Would they get critical illness? And my understanding is, what's your well, what's what's your rather my understanding? What's what's your practical take on that? When critic, when people who have a family history of immediate family history of Huntington's, how how do insurers look at them from a, from a critical illness perspective? In terms of when we do research for um, critical illness cover for somebody who has a family history of um, of Huntington's, we would find with uh, standard insurers that they wouldn't be able to get critical illness cover. And I think one thing that sort of like really stands out for me with that is that is that firstly, um, 
Huntington's isn't covered under, it isn't listed as a critical illness. So we don't even, in a sense, need to put an exclusion on the policy for anything related, anything linked to Huntington's because of the fact that it's not there. Maybe not saying anything related to it, but you know, generally it's, it's not there, so we're not going to put an exclusion on. But also, based upon most policies, it would be the total permanent disability that would cover um, the potential claim for Huntington's. Yeah. And we do yeah. have quite a few times where total permanent disability is excluded from a policy. Now, I don't know enough in terms of information about does Huntington's increase the risk of heart attacks, of cancer, stroke, or the other conditions that are listed there. But it does from, from not having the insight of, a, of an underwriter and all the years training that you've had, Matt, it, it mm-hmm. does sometimes you look at these things and you think, well, why can't we just exclude total permanent disability? It's a, it's a very good question. And on that one, I would have to say it's, it's a very good point. And um, if somebody is out there that um, has a... Has an answer for me. An answer for you, yeah. I was going to say, uh, uh, yeah, um, it, it would be good. To, to know and I would learn something myself ultimately um I'm just trying to if I'm just looking at the if we looked at those um, those symptoms whether they would I mean you've already talked about the big ones so you've got cancer and heart attack stroke is there an increase in those um now the common causes of death of Huntington's, it's not. Um, it's 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 including the following really, but it's it's pneumonia and other infections right. will tend to kill people. Injuries. This is kill, mind you. We are talking. Yeah, I was going to say we're talking life here. Injuries we? related to falls and complications related to the inability to swallow. So I mean, so that could be potentially what a traumatic head injury. And the logical way. Um, of looking at it, at least for me anyway, is that somewhere um, in the list of issues that Huntington's causes, you know, we, we talked about the early the early signs and symptoms, uh, signs later on, and also just talked about the common causes of death um, of, from Huntington's, then I think within the lists here, there must be something whereby um, there is an increased risk to some of those other listed critical illnesses. You, you mentioned yourself earlier, Catherine, about you know um, stroke, heart disease, cancer, and so on and so forth. Um, that's really the only logical answer I can give to why underwriters, insurance companies, etc., would decline as opposed to exclude. That's the usual reason for it. Um, but I have to say, on the I suppose on the on the you know the the, the research and, and based on knowledge that I've acquired over the years, there is nothing obvious from the various bits and pieces I've said. It's sorry, what I mean by bits and pieces is disorders and medical conditions that would automatically think, ah, oh, that's a red flag. Um, so it's it's a good question, and as I say, if there's anybody out there who can um, build on that then um, I, I would love to hear as well as Catherine, to be perfectly honest with you, but that's as best I can do at the moment. Hope that's okay. That is, you know, obviously really, really helpful, Matt. Thank you. And I think it's one of those things where there's not an easy answer. And I think, you know, I've been doing a little bit of work. You know, I, I do work alongside some underwriters working sort of like a, in sort of like a voluntary basis and actuaries learning more about side of things. And one of the things that really stands out to me is how much insurers, if they are going to make any changes, it's so dependent upon... Um, the data and you know and when we're looking at things and they're looking about how they would maybe assess somebody with breast cancer you know they've had you know 
hundreds of thousands, millions of people over decades that they've been able to to sort of look at those statistics to say, well, if somebody's diagnosed at this uh, this age with this, what did that happen? You know, in terms of how long they lived for, what happens? You know, as medical advances have happened, I, mean, I can't even imagine the amount of complexity that comes into that kind of level of diagnosis. I don't think I could actually cope looking at it, to be honest. And, and I think it probably comes down to, because I know when I was trying to have a look at some statistics on them at Huntington's, I, I couldn't actually find many um, that kind of gave more sort of like a, a national um, sort of like insight. I've got some that was more localized, but nothing nationally to the UK. Um, but it doesn't seem as if, you know, people are being diagnosed at the same amount as, other conditions and I'm not saying that's a sort of like trivialized condition because it is you know it's, it is a very significant condition that people need to be aware of and that we should be trying to obviously do as much as we can to support but what I obviously whilst I've posed some challenges in terms of the way that some products are designed maybe the way that some underwriting philosophies work I also at the same point want to say about the industry that the industry can only work and insurers can only work upon what they can analyze as as a risk and I'm and I can't imagine that there's anywhere near the same amount of data available for people with Huntington's as there would be for, for many other conditions, including things like, uh, let's say, cancers, mental health, heart attacks and, and things like that. Is, is that right, Matt? Um, I, I certainly would say the, the statistics on, on the diagnosis of Huntington's should be out there, but rather like you, um, I, I find it very difficult to, to find any publicly available data. Um, and it certainly isn't on the Huntington, well, I didn't, couldn't see it anyway, on the Hunting, Huntington's Disease Association website. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, I don't get the impression the prevalence in the UK at least um, is particularly huge in comparison with some other diseases. Um, there's no two ways about that and part of it might be because it's, of course it's an inherited disorder and the knowledge about the, the inheritance that's come through in more recent times and when I say more recent times I mean the last 30-40 years or so on and so forth um, so that sadly people who historically anyway so people who have um, histories of Huntington's wouldn't have had children and therefore wouldn't be, um, you know, the, the, the disease wouldn't be carried on. Or, of course, some, thankfully, more recently, have got the um, ability to do kind of an IVF type treatments to uh, eradicate that gene. Um, and therefore, I would, my gut feel is that the, 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 the gene, the, sorry, the pool of Huntington's disease cases is, is um, relatively small in comparison with with other diseases. And that's not to say or take anything away from how horrific this disease actually is. Um, so you're absolutely right in, in, in broad terms around um, the, the underwriters and actuaries in particular. They, you know, ultimately all of the ratings should have some form of sound um, actuarial underwriting basis to them. Um, and Certainly, some of the strange decisions that that you kind of um, that, that come out and they look completely over the top um, mm. at first look. And maybe I could say COVID being rather controversial. The, the insurers' reactions to COVID, um, yeah. Um, even if I go back all those years ago, HIV. 
um, were could be perceived as completely completely over the top. But the reality is, without the data to understand what the end game could look like, then um, bear in mind that the underwriting, or the sorry, the insurance, the whole of the insurance process is around risk. Um, you're not going to risk. Um, you're not going to put money behind something where you just don't. We should just don't understand the risk. Yeah. You know that's that's the same as banking, investment, anything. Um, you know, you know, you're not going to put behind money money behind something which you just don't understand. And th- that will go. That really kind of shows really the the it underlines your point about the importance of data. If it's not there, insurance won't insurance companies won't want to take a risk on it. Yeah. No, I. I uh... So that's really, and you know, yeah. I think that probably sums up what you were saying. So I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I've got a couple of case studies to close off the uh, the podcast today. So these are people that had a family history of somebody with um, Huntington's disease. And as I said, this is just immediate blood relatives. So it's purely parents and siblings. The insurers don't want to know about aunties, uncles, grandparents, cousins children, anything like that, we're talking about your initial family kind of um, set. So I've got two life insurance options here to explain. So the first one was somebody that had a family history of a parent and a sibling that were diagnosed with Huntington's disease. One had been in their 40s and one was in their 30s. Now, this person was 50 years old and needing life insurance due to their specific circumstances. And based upon that, we'd arranged for them to have £250,000 worth of level life insurance over 16 years for a premium that was close to £55 per month. Uh, The other person that we helped, and these are just a couple of examples we have, was a person um, who had a parent diagnosed in their 40s um, and they had themselves been tested and they did know that uh, they were positive for the Huntington's disease gene. Now, this person was in their mid-30s. They had the the positive test and they'd also had um, depression as a result of the diagnosis. And for that person, again, due to their individual circumstances and how much cover they needed, we arranged £80,000 worth of level life insurance over 30 years, and that was £22 per month. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. I hope that this has been helpful, and thank you so much for your insights, Matt. It's always always lovely to have you on. Thanks very much. Um, it, particularly enjoyable, enjoyable session, I have to say. The um, some of the testing questions is exactly why I still live underwriting after 41, 42 years, because nobody's got all, all the answers. That's what makes it so interesting. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for thank you for uh, listening to my challenging uh, questions in such a <laughs> in such a public forum as well. There's not many that would that would get on the uh, onto something like this and uh, speak so openly about things. So so thank you. Next time I'm going to be back with Roy McLaughlin and Keith Richards. Keith Richards is joining us to talk about financial vulnerability task force, which is a key area that we all need to be aware of during these uh, difficult economic times and really at, at any time as well. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget, if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too. Thanks to our sponsors, the Octa members. Thank you, Matt. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye.